Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. The saying in East Yorkshire is, um, if there's five cars, it's a traffic jam. So it is one of the most unpopulated places in the country, and it is a beautiful place to live. And I went there as a student 30 years ago, 1992, September, and I'd only been a Christian about three months at the time. And this is part of the journey I want to share um, of, of where kind of I came from and, and came to and how I became a church minister, because that was totally accidental. Uh, but I'd only been a Christian about three months when I moved to Hull University and became involved in Hull Community Church. And it was like family. It was like home. Um, it's the feeling I've walked in today and the welcome that I've received reminds me so much of, of that feeling of family that I had 30 years ago, and as a, as a young student um, who'd had a really quite an isolated upbringing, that was just amazing, and I just slipped into that whole life, and church, family, and God all became a part of who I was, and um, over those years, I, I grew up with Hull Community Church, and 26 years ago, I helped found a charity called the Hull Lighthouse Project, and this is a charity that works with women in prostitution. Um, and I'm still involved with it today. I was the manager for seven years. I was chair of trustees for another 10. And I still do fundraising. And I'm still involved with them. And it is, really has been life-changing for me in so many ways. The, the very thing we started when we founded this project was unconditional love. It was just to go out there and to love the women on the streets. And very quickly, we discovered that heroin, crack, domestic violence, childhood abuse, and so Many different factors were what led the women um, to be out there on the streets selling themselves. And these women taught me so much about courage and love and life and honesty and friendship. It was amazing. And actually what we found um, as we grew into a kind of a bigger charity and more than just volunteers and we had staff was that just walking alongside these women and just loving them, we were able to help transform their lives and bring them back to a place where they could rebuild their lives, and, and that wasn't easy for them. For many of them, it'll be a lifetime of, of trauma and overcoming that. Um, and some of those women now I've known for a quarter of a century, and I've watched their journeys. And I, I was at the 20th anniversary um, six years ago, and I, I stood with two of the women who I'd helped right in the early days, and they'd lost their children into care. They'd had very chaotic lives through everything that they'd suffered and I stood there listening to them as they were talking about being grandmas and they'd refound the joy of motherhood through grandparenting so they'd lost their children but found them again um, as they put their lives back together and it was just like my heart kind of filled with that love and that sense that this isn't a quick fix you know when people have suffered trauma and they've gone through a lifetime of it it, it, it takes a lifetime and, and actually walking with people But that's the beginning, in a sense, of my story um, with, if you like, the LGBT community, um, because I met, it was the first time I'd met anybody who was gay. I'd gone through right the way through my childhood. Um, I'd had, I hadn't had a Christian upbringing, but I did have um, a mother who was um, quite homophobic. Um, And then the church that I came into was very conservative, evangelical, had very strict views. about um, same-sex relationships and very traditional views, which was that it was wrong and it was a sin. Um, and, and I am really 
sorry now looking back um, for some of the things that we did as a church um, and some of the harm, even if I perhaps wasn't in leadership then. Um, looking back, I didn't understand and I didn't know what we were doing to people and the harm that we were causing. And I just did not have any friends at all who were gay. I didn't know anybody. So the first time I ever met anyone who was gay was through my work with the Lighthouse Project. Um, and you might think this is a little bit strange, kind of this story around sort of women in prostitution and, and wondering what that's all about. And that, in a sense, is a whole different story. And if anyone wants to ask me about it later or this evening, I'd be more than happy to share some of those stories too. But my first light bulb moment was um, probably five or six years after the lighthouse started. And we really tried to build friendship with the women. And I had two of the women um, home for... uh, Well, they came around to my house for pizza and a film. And this particular woman had had a really, really traumatic childhood, early adulthood. She'd been groomed into prostitution. She was very heavily on drugs. And it took a really long time for her to be able to put her life back together. But what I'd seen is it was her female partner that the love that her female partner had given her had given her the strength to come off the streets and the strength to put her life back together. And that evening when they came round for this pizza and a film and we were laughing together and they were sat on their floor with their arms around each other, these, just these two beautiful women um, in this same-sex relationship. And I can remember sat there on the sofa and looking at them and thinking, who am I to say their love is wrong? Who am I to say their love is wrong? That was all. That was it. Um, It was, I I can feel it today almost. I can see it, I can picture it, and I remember it. And that was the beginning of a journey for me that went on for 10 years, which was becoming silently affirming. It was a decision not to judge. It was a decision to say, actually, I, I, I suppose what I saw that day was love, And I saw it in its truest form and its most beautiful form. And and I thought, this is no different from the love that I have um, in my relationship. How how can I somehow say that their love is different? Their love has had the power to put their lives back together, to bring beauty and and love and and so much else. Um, uh, Who am I to say their love is wrong? So I went through a period of time where I was very affirming and I was supportive, but I was silent. I didn't feel I needed to... And I just, to be honest, I never even looked at the Bible at that point to see what the Bible said. I never tried to understand um, where some of the views, the traditional views had come from. I just felt, actually, do you know what? My, my mission in this world is to love. That's all I've been asked to do by God, and that's all I need to do. I don't need to judge. I don't need to know whether somebody's relationship is right or wrong. I just need to love. And so that was a 10-year period, which there's not an awful lot that happened in that 10 years, other than I I tried to learn how to love well um, and love anybody who came. And I ended up at that point, I'd become head of the community work at the church, and the church is um, similar to your beautiful building here. We had kind of a big new building that we'd put up in 2006, and we were just reaching out into the community in so many different ways, so many people coming through our doors, um, it was an exciting and an amazing time. And we were, we were learning how to love well in all kinds of areas um, of the work that we were doing at church. And then, um, it, probably about eight years ago, um, the pastor of the church um, before me, Dave, I knew that he was on a similar journey, but again, silently affirming. And what many of you might know is that there are many pastors out there who are in this place right now who are silently affirming, who who are afraid to speak out, um, who are are worried of what might happen. 
They are worried about splitting their church. Um, that is one of the greatest fears. When you're a pastor, you're a shepherd. Um, you know, you are family um, to Keely and Simon. You are their family. And you know, they, it, this is not an easy journey to take um, because the very thing you want to do as a pastor is to hold people together and hold your family together. Um, so these are, these, these are not easy things to do. And, and I certainly remember myself um, feeling and believing that being neutral served everybody. Um, being neutral, actually, well, I can love everybody and then everybody can fit in. Um, one of the things I've come to realize is that actually um, that's not good enough. Um, it's not good enough just to be silently affirming. Actually, one of my favorite quotes from Desmond Tutu um, is he talks about neutrality and he said, in situations of injustice, um, neutrality is not okay. And he talks about the elephant and the mouse. I think I've got the quote here um, that I can read to you. And he says, um, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. And actually, what we've not understood, and which I'll come to a little bit later, is we've not understood the harm and the pain and the trauma and the suffering that has been done in the name of God to our LGBT brothers and sisters. And this is not enough to stay silent. We have to speak up and we have to be vocal and we have to show what love really looks like, really looks like, because love is all that we've been given by Jesus. It's all that he gave us. Yes, we have the Old Testament, the New Testament. We have this amazing collection of stories and poetry and laws. But Jesus said, all of that is hung on love. The one commandment, the one thing that I want for you is love. The one thing I want you to do is to love God with all your heart, mind and soul. To love one another as yourself. So all we get is love This journey that we have of life, right from day one, is to learn how to love and to love well, to love ourselves and to love one another. And Jesus gave himself to show that. He gave himself to show what it meant to love. Um, And he broke the rules all the time. It's no wonder um, that he did end up being crucified by the religious leaders, by the people who hated him because he loved and he loved in a way that went against so many of the things that people believed at the time, and he went against so many cultural norms. Um, but he loved, and he loved with passion and compassion and kindness, and he showed people what it really meant to be valued and to have dignity and respect and honour. And that is an amazing gift that he gave us, that we can follow in that love, and we can be that love. That is just incredible that we can do that but it's hard as well and it's messy and it doesn't always um, doesn't always sit well with us because we're trying to figure this out we've not been given a rule book because the bible in itself isn't a rule book to just and that's what the pharisees tried to do isn't it you know we think of them as bad people um well maybe we don't but but essentially they were trying to prevent um the jewish religion from being subsumed into rome which in many ways had so many evil um violent tendencies and they wanted to to carry their Jewish religion and to to maintain that and not sort of slide into the world um, and and just become like everybody else and they were trying so hard to help the the Jewish people to know what it was to 
um, to, to have God in their lives. And yet what they did is create these barriers and these burdens that basically prevented people from knowing God at all. And Jesus came and he said, strip all that back. You cannot put barriers in the way of people knowing God. And I'm going slightly off track here. Um, but in terms of the story and where we went next as a church, is the, the previous church minister, Dave, he invited to our elders meeting um, a lady called Lucy, Lucy Gorman. And she was the, um, she'd set up a group in Hull called the LGBT Christian Fellowship. Um, a wonderful lady. And I remember, again, it was one of those light bulb moments for me when she came to share her story um, I cannot remember what her story was. Isn't that the amazing thing? All I remember is this young woman was filled with the Holy Spirit and she had the grace and love and compassion and patience and joy. And she just, it was just like sitting there and seeing God in her life. And it was, she was the first gay Christian I'd ever met. Um, Isn't that amazing that I'd gone all of that time, all of my life without meeting another single gay Christian And to hear her, for me, it was just that moment, who am I to say God isn't in her? And that she, how could I say she wasn't a Christian because she's gay and she's in a gay relationship? I was just like, this, I just couldn't get my head around. And so I suppose at that point, as a church, we were, we'd really moved forward um, on our journey. But there was still that fear and there was still that, can we, could we do anything? Shall we? We'll just stay silent. Again, we'll just stay neutral. Everybody is served by staying neutral. Then seven years ago, I was asked to become the senior pastor of Hull Community Church. Um, And I took that role on. And I started to feel the Holy Spirit. You know, that still small voice um, that when God's just prompting you and he was saying, come on, come on, you need to get off the fence, Sam. Just come on, you need to start speaking up. Come on. And I was afraid. I will admit that I was afraid. I... I was the first woman to become a senior leader of the church and and young, in a sense, um, and thinking, what are the church going to think of me? I'm I'm a woman, you know, if I, first thing I do is split the church um, because I I, I come out openly and support the LGBT community. Um, How is that going to look as a woman? Um, But it's just God's still small voice. Come on, Anne, come on, you need to do this. And that voice, it just... You know, when God's, even God's insistence isn't yelling at you, is it? It's just like, you just know it, and he's just like filling your heart, um, and he's just there. And then in September 2017, um, well, he kind of kicked me off the fence, really. Um, I got um, invitations from two churches in the city, um, the local Vineyard Church and the Anglican Church, asking if I would um, send out invites to our church members to come to some conferences that they had around sexuality, Um, these two um, churches were very much wanting to teach the traditional um, biblical views around around the LGBT community and how same-sex relationships weren't weren't right in a compassionate way, but they wanted to to teach that. And at the same time, Lucy, this same Lucy Gorman, she contacted me and she said, look, you're probably going to say no, and I completely understand it. She said, but I've spent three years trying to get Steve Chalk to come to Hull to share his story of how... Um, his church became inclusive, and he's eventually agreed because he's up north for something else. Should only we've realised that there's no church, well, no church in Hull will have us. She said there's just one church, and it can only fit about 50 people in, but we think lots of people are going to want to come 
and we could really do with the hall a bit bigger. She said, but I completely understand if you don't feel ready as a church. Um, and I was like, no, no, God's telling me we're ready. And I went to the elders and I said, look, I, I know we haven't planned this, but we have to open up this conversation in the church. We really need to. Um, and they agreed and we wrote a letter to the church and we asked people, go, go to the other two conferences, go and hear the other speakers, read books. We invited Lucy to come and share her story um, and, and answer questions and we just talked together over the next few months as a church. Um, and it took us eight months, it'll, probably a lot longer than um, it'll, it'll take you in terms of the journey because we, we paused and other things were going on as well. But eventually one day... Um, we went through all of that and we agreed that we were going to stand up and we were going to become openly affirming and celebrate love as it was, celebrate um, the, the gay community and celebrate um, same-sex marriage and actually register the church for same-sex marriage. That's the um, talk that Keely first heard from me because it was recorded at the time. Uh, she didn't hear it then, but a few months ago, um, somebody had sent it to her. What she didn't know at that time is I'd stood up And I'll never forget that after I gave that talk to the church, a young woman came to see me, stand on the stage next to me like I am today. I feel a little bit emotional when I tell this story because um, this is a young woman that I knew really well. She'd been in my home, had meals with me. She babysat my kids. She'd walked my dog. I thought the world of her. And she came and she said to me, I'm gay. And I've never felt safe to say that in a church before. And I feel quite emotional because all I could think is, why didn't she feel safe with me? Why did she think I wouldn't love her? She knows me. Surely she knows who I am. I would have loved her no matter what. And I think it was at that moment it dawned on me just how much damage had been done um, to our gay brothers and sisters in Christ that they do not feel safe and they will not feel safe. And there will be some people in this room today, who have probably never felt safe to be in a church and to say that they are gay or that they are trans. They all have never felt safe. And I know that now because many, many stories have been told to me since that day. And even just two days ago, I was with Andy at a funeral with his family and ended up at the wake sitting next to a young man there. And he was asking where we were coming this weekend. And so I was telling him and he said, oh, I'm gay. And I grew up in church, and that was my experience as well. And I asked him a little bit about it. He said, I never told the church. I never told them. He said, and I stayed silent. And he said, I, d- I only came out three years ago when I was 21. And, um, and he said, it was so hard. He said, but I had to come out in the end because it was, it was causing me depression, not talking about it. And his, that's t- two days ago, and his story is only one of hundreds that I've heard over the last four years since we did this journey as a church. Silence is not only what the church gives to our LGBT brothers and sisters, it's what they feel is required of them as well, is to stay silent in church and not to be true to themselves and be true to who they are. And that is incredibly painful. I mean, and that's in some ways the least of the trauma. The silence is trauma in itself. But you'll have known there is much, much worse um, that has been done in the name of God. Um, And I've certainly over the last few years been fighting um, around conversion therapy because I have seen firsthand as a pastor the damage it has done in people's (coughs) lives. I have a really good friend called Peterson Toscano. Um, He's been to Hull and he actually lives in America. 
Um, but he spent 17 years in conversion therapy, 17 years, $30,000 over three continents, the UK included, um, to try and make himself straight. That is the damage that was done. And if you talk to him about that, he said, he will say to you, he said, I went into that voluntarily. Nobody forced me into it. But the reason he did is we have no idea what people's sense of belonging is wrapped up in in their faith and in church. And when we say to somebody that they cannot be who they are and that they must be celibate or they must, um, they must marry uh, in an opposite-sex relationship and they must become straight, what we are saying to them is you cannot belong and you are not good enough. And that causes huge, huge amounts of trauma and of pain. And, um, and the fruit of that can at times be death. There are a lot of people who have tried to take their own lives in the LGBT community. And as a church, we have to take that on board. We have to. If the fruit of what we do is death, that is not of God. That is not the life-giving love of the Jesus I know, who brought into people's lives joy and freedom and just the beauty and wonder of being human He affirmed people who had been nothing, people who were weak and vulnerable and marginalised. He walked into their lives and he gave them life and dignity and beauty. That is the legacy of the Jesus that we know and love. God is love. Those beautiful words in 1 John 4, one of the last letters, one of the very last things that was ever written that is in the Bible that we love. Um, by John, the closest friend, the closest disciple of Jesus. And he comes to the very end of that, um, the arc of history that we have right from the very beginning and the Adam and Eve story. Even that has its beauty in it because when those two were full of shame, what did God do? He sewed them garments. Can you imagine how tender that is that God sewed garments to cover someone's shame? Right the way we take to the very end of time, the very end of that Bible, that letter that was written by John who loved Jesus so much and he doesn't write God loves and it tries to explain what that love is. He says God is love. It's the only place it's written in the whole Bible. God is love and he says it twice. He says whoever loves is of God, wherever that love is of God. And there's so many, if you read the book of one John, the letter, It's beautiful. It's not written in a Pauline way of sort of structure. Um, John writes almost like in circles. He sort of makes this point and then he builds on it and builds on it. But the idea that God is love and love is of God. And then you go back to the book of John and you read about that love as well. And Jesus keeps saying, I just give you one commandment. I give you a commandment to love. That is what I've given you to love. And all of it hangs on love. All of it. There is nothing else. And the other things we get in early on in Matthew, where Jesus says, do to others um, as you would have done to yourself. Well, I ask you, if you're in an opposite sex relationship, if you're married, what did it feel like when you got together? Were you excited to tell your friends and family that you'd met somebody, that you'd fallen in love? Were you excited when you got engaged? Were you planning your wedding in a church to stand up in front of your family and friends with amazing music like this to be able to say your vows before God and before the whole community 
you would have been excited for that. That was what you would have wanted. Do to others as you would have done to yourself. And yet the church hasn't done that to our LGBT brothers and sisters. We've said to them instead that the only way you can belong is to be celibate. Or the only way you can belong um, is to break up with that person who you believe is the love of your life and who you want to spend the rest of your life with. And you need to go instead to marry a man or a woman of the opposite sex because that's the only way you'll be acceptable to God. This is not okay. This is not from God. This is not the Jesus that I know. And especially, certainly, when I started looking, I realized there was literally only five or six passages in the whole of the Bible that talked... I don't even say they talked about gay relationships because you read them, and as Steve has really much more brilliantly than I could have done the last couple of weeks explained what those mean. But they very clearly are about exploitation in relationships which used to happen in a massive way in the time of Rome. Um, You know, relationships were such a power imbalance and sex was used to control and to harm people, both in opposite sex and same-sex relationships. It's not at all surprising that there are some verses that actually sort of explore that and and say and condemn that exploitation of people. But they do not refer to same-sex, loving, mutual, consensual relationships. And we have no excuse today. We might have had an excuse 30 years ago. The people who taught me might not have ever known what it was, gay relationships, and never really understood them. But today we haven't got that excuse. We all of us know people. We all of us, within your church, you have some amazing people. Um, You have some inspirational people. In Martin and Deb, I listened to their story. Um, And the parental love that you had for your daughters is incredible, And nobody should say, ah, the church is just making the changes because of this particular family. We should instead be saying, thank goodness we've got parents like Martin and Deb who are willing to put their love for their children first. That is an amazing thing. That is a beautiful thing. It's no wonder that the Bible is full of the Father heart of God because we're taught about parental love in its most beautiful sense. A parent will love their child no matter what. And we all know... I think most of us know what love really feels like. We might not have had that from a parent, um, but most of us will have somebody in our lives who really loves us deeply. And I don't know what that feels like to you, but I'm going to describe what it feels like to me um, from, from Andy, my other half. When I feel loved by Andy, it's, um, he honours and he cares And he's attentive, he values, he listens to me. He thinks I'm amazing, which half the time I'm like, I'm really not. He's the only person who's ever told me I'm perfect. And yet he knows my greatest weaknesses. He knows the worst things about me. He knows when I accidentally eat an earphone because I thought it was a chocolate in the car the other day (laughs) because I picked the wrong thing up. Um, And he just called me a silly sausage, actually. He was slightly more rude than that. But anyway, um, but, but he, he'd seen all my stupid idiosyncrasies and all of that, and yet he thinks I'm perfect, um, and he thinks I'm amazing, and he celebrates who I am. And I always say, you're my biggest fan, Andy. Um, and that's just, that's how it feels to be loved. And Jesus has said, the greatest commandment I give you is to love And so this journey we're on, this messy journey called life, this thing we're trying to do together as church, this thing we're trying to do together as family, 
it's messy and it doesn't fit rule books. And, and sometimes, like this time in our society, let us be on the right side of history. Let us make that walk together. This is hard sometimes for some of you. You see, I've, I, had, I had years' worth of, of kind of God moving me. For some of you, you'll never have even thought of this until Keely and Simon have brought this up and brought this to you. And in some ways, it'll feel like a shock. It'll feel like a kind of the world being rocked underneath your feet. And yet, there's been times in history when that's happened. And the abolition of the slave trade was one of those, which is a... I love that story because I'm from Hull and William Wilberforce, who was the MP who abolished slavery, is from Hull. So, of course, you know, you get to go to the museum and read all the stories and watch the film Amazing Grace, and and it's wonderful. But I'm always fascinated and, and saddened by the fact he was a Christian and yet he was ostracised and he became part of a, you know, he was seen as, as he was othered. Um, and every year that he failed to abolish slavery, the church bells rang out across it, England because they celebrated his failure to abolish slavery because the church used the Bible um, to justify slavery. So the church does have a bit of a history um, of of not always understanding, of using the Bible almost as a weapon. I don't quite want to say it that way, but it has been used um, to, to treat people as less than. And that does not look like love. If any of you have ever suffered judgment, if any of you have ever had somebody in your life who's judged you and has seen you as less than worthy and has wanted you to change, you'll know that doesn't feel like love. It really doesn't. And we cannot call on our gay brothers and sisters um, to either be celibate, to enforce celibacy. Now, I know there's um, a movement called um, Living Out, and I respect people who choose celibacy, just as I respect... I have some wonderful friends who are nuns. I respect their choice of celibacy, but it is their choice. Let us not enforce that on anybody. That is harmful to the worst degree. You would not ask it of yourself... You would not say of your child, you must be celibate for the rest of your life if they have a longing for intimacy and closeness. You would not do that. And love is love. It really is. Um, Our chair of trustees from the church, who was one of the senior leaders, um, describes how his change came about in his thinking, which was to do with a a friend he'd known for 30 years, um, who was in a, a man who was married to his husband, And he said at the end of his life, um, when he had cancer, for six years his husband nursed him to his deathbed and held his hand as he let go. That is love. Are we going to turn around and say that love isn't as good as the love of a man and woman and a man and wife? Are we going to turn around and say that that man who nursed his husband to death didn't understand those vows of in sickness and in health? And that that wasn't a beautiful relationship and that wasn't a symbol of Christ talking about laying down our lives in love for one another. The greatest love that you can give is to lay down your life for another man and for our brothers and to love in that way. Are we going to say that's not love? Because John says in that book at the end, where love is, there God is. And I do believe we're called to celebrate love. And this is not the same as, I've, I've heard people say, oh, but kind of it's a slide into um, the, sort of the, the world and into, you know, where, where will we go next? Will we be saying that sort of adultery is fine and other things are fine? But I just think that's false thinking. It is not the same. 
Anybody who knows a, a same-sex relationship, a loving relationship, will know it is as beautiful and as wonderful as an opposite-sex relationship and should be celebrated in the same way. And if any of you have ever suffered firsthand um, through adultery, you'll know that there's harm there. That doesn't mean to say we should judge, but you'll know that there's harm in those relationships, harm for all three parties involved. And actually, often, there's a lot of shame there as well. And it's something that, that it would be good for people to be able to talk through and work through. But you cannot compare the two. A loving, same-sex, consensual relationship is just as beautiful in every possible way as an opposite-sex one. And I have met so many wonderful people. And the church, it's like my heart has opened up and has blossomed in the last four years of seeing the people that have come in. And there's a heartbreak too because of the stories you hear and the harm that's been done to people. Um, And I have a number of gay friends who have tried to take their own lives um, and have harmed themselves because of not being accepted and not being loved for who they are. But then there's a blossoming as well when they do come into a family and a community where they're loved and they're seen and they're known for who they are and they're accepted and I moved beyond the word acceptance because that I sort of used to say that, but I sort of got to the place of saying, none of us want to be tolerated or just that accepted is one step up from being tolerated. Um, we're all of us looking. Love looks like affirmation and celebration and beauty and value and honour and respect and seeing the best in somebody. And actually, I believe as a church, we're not whole until every part of us is there and is free to be who they are and to be themselves. And uh, I sometimes think of those words of Jesus when he says, um, you, will, you will know truth and the truth will set you free. But so often I think that isn't some truth up here. It's the truth about me. Um, I've certainly learned things about myself. Well, I'm learning things about myself every day. But it's certainly in the last four or five years I've been able to be a lot more honest about some of the things that are part of who I am, um, and I actually believe in inclusion in every single way. I have a daughter who has Asperger's, and doing the journey with her towards her diagnosis, she's 20 now, made me realise that I have some of those mild traits myself. And it's been really freeing to be able to actually say that I have those and to understand them and to realise when I get sensory overload and some other things that, that, I, that happen as well. Um, But I love my daughter. If you came to me, of course I love my daughter, but I mean, if you came to me tomorrow and said, someone's come up with a cure for for autism, for Asperger's, I would not want that for my daughter because she is who she is. I mean, I I would want whatever she wants for herself and is best for her. But what I mean is that she is beautiful and perfect as she is. Her brain thinks very differently and she is neurodiverse and it is incredible Um, But she is honest and loyal and true. Um, She says things as they are. And, yeah, it's beautiful. I don't want her to be any different. And I don't want my gay brothers and sisters to be any different, my trans family to be different. I want people to be able to be true to who they are, for us to walk together in integrity. And, And I know that's hard because we're trying to kind of compute this with what we understand about God and what we understand about the Bible. Uh, But one of the stories that I I really love is the story of Peter and Cornelius. Um, And it's one I've often come back to over the years. And if you read through the book of Acts, 
this amazing book written by an amazing man, Luke, who's said to be one of the best kind of historians that, that ever lived in the ancient world. But he writes this story of the early church, and I think sometimes we can miss what a big deal it was that Gentiles became part of that early church and that they weren't circumcised. Um, it was massive. You know, circumcision for us just seems like a kind of a, a bit of a, a, a niche ritual now. But for the Jewish people at the time, it was the one thing that set them apart from the rest of the world. It was the one thing that showed their relationship with God and actually made them part of this community. It was massively important, massively. So to actually then say that, that people could be Christians, the Gentiles could be Christians without being circumcised was huge. And it almost feels similar to today what we have is, is asking can gay people be Christians if they're not celibate? Um, but I think if we look back to that early church and look to the decisions that they made, then that can be really inspiring. Um, and go back and read um, Acts, Acts 10 after this and have a look at that Peter and Cornelius story um, because you've got this kind of image of Peter and he's got this vision from God, this sheet that's dropped down from heaven full of animals and God says, eat, kill, eat. And Peter's saying, no, I, God, I've never touched anything that was unclean. Three times this happens, and three times Peter will not touch it. You know, his cultural background, his, what his belief was so strong um, around what was unclean that he couldn't even obey God, even though God was pressing him and pressing him. But thankfully, that vision that Peter had did lead him when Cornelius' servants turned up to say, will you come to Cornelius' house? It meant that Peter actually was willing to go. But he must have been way out of his comfort zone. This must have been beyond anything that he'd experienced um, before. And when he, Cornelius was a centurion, I mean, remember, this is Roman-occupied territory. This is like, say, asking a Christian to go and see a, a Nazi SAS officer. You know, this was serious stuff. And he turns up at Cornelius' house, and Cornelius has gathered his whole family together, um, and, and Peter says, this is illegal, I shouldn't be here, why am I here? And Cornelius explains, and then Peter um, just starts sharing about Jesus and everything that had happened, and the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and all of his household. And you can just imagine Peter going, wow. And it actually says that the disciples that had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles and Peter simply says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. God does not show favoritism, so neither should we. And God does not lay burdens upon people that they cannot carry. And we must not lay a burden upon our gay brothers and sisters to be celibate or to change. We need to celebrate the love that is and to see it. And we know, don't we, that Jesus, he had a massive amount of compassion for people and love and dignity that he brought to people. Um, the only times he really seemed to get angry were with the Pharisees. And um, I think it's really interesting that he, we've actually got, you've got Matthew 22, which is the beautiful passage about the greatest commandment is love. And the second greatest commandment is to, to love one another as yourself. But that's sandwiched between two passages in Matthew 21 and Matthew 23, where in Matthew 21, Jesus is saying to them, you know, I tell you truly that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And he's just telling them straight, and that would have been shocking to the audience at the time, shocking. 
And then you've got in um, Matthew 23 where it says, he says the Pharisees, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And then he goes on and says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And he goes on, Woe to you, teachers of the law. You give your tithe, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These are all the beautiful things that we carry. This message of love that we have from Jesus is woven into everything. It's the tapestry of our lives, the tapestry of humanity. It is incredible, and there are so many stories. I'd love to share some more of the stories tonight because I've sort of run out of time today, but stories of the woman caught in adultery, um, which is, a, I think is a beautiful story of dignity. Um, and a couple of days ago, Andy and I um, had coffee with um, a trans lady in Oxford, Chrissy. Amazing, amazing woman. And we were actually stuck, the cafe was full. It was a bit like the sort of birth of Jesus. We were stuck out in this little stable. It was a hut with a camping table in it. And we were just sat there for, for two hours and our little dog was um, with us as well. And we were just sharing. And there was one point I said to Chrissy, I just feel shivers up and down my spine as she was opening the gospel to me of John. Um, and it was, it was just incredible. Um, but Chrissy said to me, um, Afterwards, she said, so often the king, she wrote to me, she said, so often the kingdom of heaven comes down because of the presence of a marginalized, nameless, vulnerable woman. And she was talking about the, the slave girl in the healing of Neymar. And, um, and she said, it's time to recenter the kingdom of heaven where it belongs and where Jesus chose to live with the weak, vulnerable and marginalized. And Chrissy said to me, she, we were sat there, um, Andy and I, and she got these little pepper pots and she said, you know, that story of the woman caught in adultery, um, she said, every day that I walk out of my house, sometimes I'm too afraid to walk out. She said, I have um, criticism and accusations and judgment from everywhere I look, from people, from the community, from neighbours, from the media. And sometimes I'm afraid to walk out of my front door. And she said, that, that story of the woman caught in adultery, um, she's standing here and she has a little pepper pot. Um, and she said, these are the accusers who want to stone her to death. Where does Jesus stand? Here, in front of the woman. Jesus stands in front. He could have been stoned to death himself, but he stood there and he stood with her. And then she said, where is the church going to stand? She said, at the minute, the church is standing over here watching. Um, are we going to stand there in the gap? Are we going to be that protection? Are we going to be that love, that safe place? Church should be the safest place in the world for anybody that walks through our doors. Anybody. Because this mission we're on, this lifelong mission we're on is to love. I don't know any other way to do this. And that's messy. There's times when I won't understand it and there's a lot of times I'm going to get it wrong. Um, but the only thing I know how to do is to love. And what I've seen is people whose lives have blossomed. This wonderful young man who came to me a year ago and he was in the worst of places, um, a place of really a, a very, very deep pain. And that was 20 years worth of having been um, thrown out of his church. I say that in the 
as in he was asked to leave or to become celibate, uh, but not to be in a gay relationship, or else he would have to leave 20 years ago. And he's been with his partner 16 years, married for six, and they are just the most wonderful couple. And they came in to see me um, because life had just got so painful and he really wanted to reconnect with faith and with God. He'd never heard a person say to him before that God loved him for who he was. And I've watched over the last year as this young man has blossomed into... He's amazing. The very first time he came to church and realised we had a food bank, he went home with his husband, he collected up food, he bagged it all up and brought it back into the church. And then he started collecting in his local community. And we had him round for a meal just before Christmas. And he was there on his phone at one point. And he went, oh, this is amazing. He said, I've got this toy box... Um, I've been looking for one of these to cover in ladybirds, and it's because they do respite care, him and his husband, for a very severely autistic boy um, whose parents just can't cope, and they take him out, and he adores ladybirds, and so they were making him this beautiful um, toy box with ladybirds on, and, and he is just an inspiration. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. So is his husband, and they have been an inspiration to me. They've been hugely supportive um, I retired from my role, as Keely said, as church minister back at the end of October. Um, in some ways, just standing here today is this massive privilege because it's almost like God has said those sort of 30 years of ministry that came to an end that um, I knew it was time for me re- to retire. But when that's been your family your whole life, that was incredibly hard um, to walk away um, from that and to, to lay that down. But I knew it was right because my family's been through a lot the last couple of years and I knew it was my time, my season had come to an end. But to have just been contacted by Keely just a couple of weeks, I think we talked, first talked the the week I was actually retiring. And to be here today sharing the one thing that I am most passionate about, and I've done a lot of stuff in the last 30 years, but if God said to me, there's just one thing you can do again, what would it be? It would be this. It would be this. We have got to walk this path and walk it in integrity. We have got to love and we've got to love well. There's no other way of doing this life There's no other way of following Jesus but to love well. And we've got to allow people to be who they are and to be loved for who they are and to bring their gifts into church and to be able to minister um, and to be able to be part of it. And we will thrive together because the body of Christ will be whole. And that is the most beautiful thing in the world when love is allowed to flourish and we see it. And it just brings joy and it brings good fruit Because when the fruit of what Christianity and the church has done is death and pain and trauma, that is not good fruit. That's toxic. And my friend Peterson, who I said had been in conversion therapy for 17 years, he said he got to the end of that 17 years and all he had was toxic fruit. There was nothing good to show for the conversion therapy that he'd been through. And he had to, and he was afraid because he, he longed to be in ministry in church, and that's why he tried to go through the conversion therapy, because he believed God was calling him into ministry, and God was calling him into ministry. He's an amazing man who has a wonderful ministry now, but he has a ministry for who he is, and he's, you know, he's got a wonderful husband, and he's married, and it's a beautiful story, but he had to be true to himself um, and, and be real and, and be himself and not try to be somebody different. Um, And there are so many stories like that. We have to see good fruit. Because Jesus said, didn't he, by their fruits you will know them. And we've got to bring good fruit. Good fruit of love and peace and patience and kindness. And the fruits of the Spirit 
of which there is no law against those things. And see those in people and see people flourish. I've talked enough. (laughs) Um, But this evening, I do hope you'll come back. Um, I won't talk as much this evening, I promise, unless you really want me to. I do have more stories I'd like to share. Um, I would like to tell you just about some more people that I know. I'd like to um, maybe just share a few more of the Bible stories that have really influenced me and some of the things that Jesus has said um, and done that have meant a great deal. I'd like to tell you a little bit more about when the first year our church went to Pride, um, which was amazing. And um, in fact, I might even be able to put a picture or two up to be able to show you some of the things that we did. And maybe talk a little bit about gay conversion therapy as well, because I've touched on it. Um, And if anybody has any questions, because I know most of what you're doing here is um, around the gay community, but obviously LGBT is also the trans community as well. Um, I do have many trans friends, and that's a journey I've also taken. I'd be very happy if anybody has any questions um, about that. I can't promise answers. As you can tell, I do talk a lot, um, but I, I, um, I would love to be able to share, and hopefully perhaps some of you might be willing to share your stories as well. Um, because I think stories are so powerful. Jesus taught us love through stories, whether that was a story of the woman caught in adultery and how he treated her, or whether that was one of his stories where he starts, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he just leads into a beautiful story that shows us what love is like. Um, Stories change us, and they're beautiful things. So, yeah, do please come this evening, and we'll stay as long as people would like to. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.